0: We've been in a, uh, a series that we've entitled Elijah, A Man Like Us, and uh, we are uh, moving into the midway portion uh, of this uh, 10-week series, looking at the life and the times of the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. And We've learned a lot up to this point. As you're turning to First Kings 17, we are reminded of the times that Elijah lived in, that uh, he lived in a time of great idolatry. Uh, of great a great time of evil, where the kings of his land and the people of his land were pursuing false gods and and pursuing all sorts of perversions uh, as a way to promote their own selfish desires and interests, and a way to create gods that would uh, fit their liking and their desires. And God sends a man. Uh, from the place of Gilead, a Tishbite named Elijah. And Elijah is called to go to the king, King Ahab, who is far more evil than all of the kings before him combined, and to pronounce judgment on the nation of Israel and on the kingdom of Israel. And as a result of that, Elijah says, "'According to my word, it will not rain, nor will there be dew until the command comes back from my voice.'" And so then you would think that a new ministry would start and all kinds of uh, open air evangelism meetings would take place, but that's not the plan that God has for Elijah. And Elijah is commanded, it says in verse 2, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah uh, to go to Kareth, uh, the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan River, and that's what he does and And uh, we learn from the text that he would stay there uh, seemingly up to about a year in time in complete solitude and seclusion uh, where God would supernaturally meet his needs. uh, First by giving him water from a brook and then feeding him meat and bread uh, that would be delivered by ravens. And he's there and God is working and doing a work in the life of Elijah, and then at, at a time where things seem to be going well, that brook dries up and the provision is gone and God at the right time and in the right place then says to Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath. Zarephath is uh, where we would uh, consider modern day Lebanon uh, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea and he's called to go there. And the significance we learned about last week was that Zarephath was in the land of Sidon. And uh, Jezebel, who was Ahab's wife, her father and her lineage, uh, her hometown, uh, was that of the region of Sidon. And Zarephath was in the hub of Baal worship. And uh, Elijah would go there. He was to go and meet a widow who is going to meet his needs, supply for him in his time of need. And he gets there. And uh, the scripture tells us that uh, there's a little hiccup. When he meets the widow uh, in chapter 17, it says that she only has enough bread and enough, uh, or enough um, uh, flour and enough oil uh, in a jar and a jug to take care of one last meal. And she says that, in fact, uh, I'm gathering sticks, Elijah, so that I can go home and we can eat our last meal, my son and I, and so that we can die. And there, again, God meets Elijah right where he's at. And by faith, Elijah confidently proclaims that neither the jar of flour nor the jug of oil will run dry during the entire uh, time of the famine. And those people then ate and and were uh, just incredibly blessed by the miracle that God had done. And we're going to come to one more trial, one more test in the life of Elijah today. And you can ask, you know, here's this guy that has been incredibly obedient. He's done everything that God has called him to. And and it seems that everywhere he goes, every turn that he makes, that God has a test for him. That God brings an issue of struggle or an issue of uh, an obstacle in his way. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he make Elijah, this obedient prophet's life, a little easier? I know some of you are asking that very question today. Why can't life be a little easier? I'm trying my best, God. Well, what we need to learn is that God is in the process of making us more like his son. And that process many times isn't easy. And that process includes trials and tribulations and troubles that we need to be aware of so that we can learn in those difficult situations how to live like Christ and how to live like the man or woman of God that he's called us to be. And so we've seen that Elijah went to school. He went to the Careth Elementary School, and then he moved on to uh, Zarephath and, and went to high school and college in his in his time in Zarephath. And, and this passage of scripture is is what we see take place in regards to uh, many of our college seniors who find themselves moving on finally to the last semester of school, and they get some on the job training. Uh, Many of you know I've had two careers in my life. I've never interviewed for anything, and I've had two jobs uh, since uh, I've gone into adulthood. That of catering and that of pastoring. And in part of those two things, I have no uh, full formal education in either of those two fields. And so my learning of uh, those two fields came from on the job training. A little task, a starting out. I remember as a young boy working with my dad, going on events, and he would give me one task to do, not three, not four, just one, and he would say to me, maybe 10 or 11 years of age, I want you to do this, and I want you to stay focused on this thing, and then a couple months later, it would be a second one and a third one, and then when I turned to the ripe old age of 18, he had this weird thought that a caterer should turn into a pastor, and he said, it's all yours, buddy, go ahead and run the show. I would have never been ready if he hadn't given me on-the-job training. In the pastorate, it's been the same way. You guys uh, are great faith-filled people uh, to give a pastorate to an individual like myself, but you didn't give it and just hand me the pulpit and say, we've never heard this guy preach, we've never seen him do anything. But what happened was, little by little, after a Sunday school class and some small groups and and some engagement and some other uh, ministries, uh, I was given the opportunity, while being faithful in those little things, to be involved in much larger things. On-the-job training. And on-the-job training is so important because we can study and we can learn. And please understand, education is huge. It is of a great importance. But at some point, you have to leave the halls of academia. And you have to start putting those things into practice. And the worst thing that could happen to someone on the first day of the job is that they, give it, they are given the whole task instead of being given a little piece at a time. What you're going to see in Elijah's life is a little step-by-step process to the climax of this incredible story where he will face 450 prophets of Baal, and he will stand before the nation of Israel, and he will call down fire from heaven. And that's going to be a huge step of faith. And God, knowing the limitations and the struggles of the prophet Elijah, says, let me create some on-the-job training. And so he gives him a little faith uh, to work with at Kareth, and he builds that faith, and then he sends him to Zarephath, and he protects him, and he ministers to him and the widow and the son, and and his faith grows. And then he moves on to now this larger task that we're going to look at today, and it's going to be a task that's going to ask the question, is Elijah ready for the big time? Is he ready for the big show that's going to take place in chapter 18? And we need to see if Elijah is going to be able to accomplish and be victorious in this on-the-job training. So let's go ahead and look at uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24. I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And let's look at what the text has to say to us today. It says this: Sometime later the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, "What did you what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son." Elijah replied, "He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, "O oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die?" Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, "O oh Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him." The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house he gave him to his mother and said look your son is alive then the woman said to elijah now i know that you're a man of god and that the word of the lord from uh, the word of the lord from your mouth is the truth let's pray father god we come before you and yet again lord we come to another chapter in elijah's life where he is facing a difficult test a test not of his own thinking or, or as a result of his sin, but a test that you had put together based on your providence and your sovereignty. And now, Lord, we look at a man who is just like us, and we see how he might respond amidst a tragedy, how he might respond to baseless accusations, how he might respond when the going gets tough. Lord, I pray that through the lesson today that we would live like Elijah, that we would respond like him, that, Father, whatever may come this week to the lives of those in this place, whether good or bad, whether in triumph or tragedy, that the people of God here at Village Bible Church would be men and women of faith, would be men and women who put their hope in you, So that when people see us in the good, and Lord, even in the bad, they may truly be able to say, this is a man or woman of God. That's what we desire. That's what we long for, Father. And so we ask for your spirit to move in our hearts today so that we can receive that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we open up this passage of Scripture, I want to highlight just for a moment before I get into my outline, the phrase, sometime later. Uh, That kind of phrasing, many times when we read a narrative, uh, allows us just to skip beyond and not to resonate, what does that mean? And there are two things that I want to pull from that understanding of the term or phrase, sometime later. It's significant. This new episode in the life of Elijah did not take place the next day uh, after verse 16. What it's telling us is there has been a duration of time. There's been a duration of time that has taken place. And what that means, first of all, is that God has proven himself to be faithful in the supplying of food for the widow, her son, and Elijah. We need to understand that because many times we we begin to become so callous and, and, and move so quickly away from the idea that God had provided over and over and over again. I mean, it's one thing to get a couple free meals from God, but to get breakfast, lunch, and dinner, day in and day out, what seemingly seems to be for months at a time. Oh God's faithfulness, His faithfulness to His people. And some of us today are struggling, and some of us are sitting, the only thing I can remember sometime later in my life are the trials and the tribulations that, are, that I'm dealing with in my life. And let me tell you something, we are given these truths to remind us of God's faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. And we should be able to look back and say, though I have a difficult life, though things may not be exactly where I want them to be. God has been faithful and he's ministered to me over this long period of time. I was thinking as I was writing this in my outline this morning, I look back, I'm not very old, but 34 years God has watched over me. God has protected me. There have been so many times where I've been turning a radio station in my car only to look up at the right time to move myself back into my lane. God has been faithful when I am not. God has taken care of me. God has been able to give me an opportunity to work, be an opportunity to provide for my family. And God is the one that could take all of that away. And yet he doesn't. And when the going gets tough, we need to look back and rehearse over in our minds, over and over again, of the faithfulness of God that has taken place, not just yesterday, but over the years The second thing that I want us to understand and recognize is that within this idea of some time later, there is a patience that is seen by Elijah. Elijah, again, finds himself in a long chapter of time in a particular place of waiting. Remember, Elijah doesn't think, according to what we see, that his ministry is to Zarephath. What he has understood about Zarephath is that it's a step in the process. And so he has spent a, seemingly a year at Kareth, at the brook, and now he's spending months on end with a widow and her son. Lord, is that what you called me to? Here I proclaim your word to Israel and to Ahab, only to go to a foreign land and to, uh, to take care of a widow and her, her son. Is, is that it? Is that all? And yet you don't hear one thing of impatience from Elijah. How many of us are able to stay in a particular spot that God has called us to when we know inevitably it's not where God is leading us to, but it's a place that he set us there for a season, and not a word of impatience comes out. Not a, you know what, I, I, I don't know, Widow, what I'm doing here, uh, but I wish God would just come through and move me on because this can't be it. You know, I know I've got gifts and I know I've got abilities, but, but my goodness, it can't just be to take care of you two. There's got to be something greater. Brothers and sisters, be reminded that Elijah was just like us, an impetuous, impatient individual. But by faith, he chose to believe God, to believe God that God knew what timing would be best. And some of you right now are waiting on God. You're waiting on God and every word, every thought that comes out of your mouth and out of your heart and mind is that of impatience. Look to the life of Elijah who sat there for some time later until God would bring the answer in his due season. That's all extra credit. You get that for free. I know you're blessed as a result of it. Let's get to the outline. It says, now sometime later in our text... That the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? The first thing we need to understand in regards to this on-the-job training is that it involves... It's a trial that involves a great loss. We're going to learn that things unravel incredibly quickly, and Elijah goes from everything going well in the widow's house to a time where there is a trial that takes place that involves a great loss. Write that in your outlines. Here, everything's going great. Elijah finds himself being provided by God yet again. And the joy and the excitement that must have been coming out of that house, as we talked about last week, every day that woman went to the cupboard. She would once again find just enough food to take care of her and her child and the prophet. And so every day must have just been a miracle after miracle. The joy that must have come. But just like any tragedy, any trial in our life, right when things seem to be going well, on some random Tuesday or Wednesday, the bottom falls out for us. At a time of of an unknown choosing, what seems to be out of the middle of nowhere, out of left field, uh, the issue comes, the tragedy strikes, and it takes place. Notice verse 17 says, The son of the widow got sick, and he died. The idea here in the phrase in verse 17 is that he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Commentaries believe that this was not some long-lasting illness, uh, but it was something that happened relatively quickly. We don't know what uh, issue or struggle or illness uh, the widow's son had, uh, but we know that quickly he dies. And it brings great shock uh, to the world uh, of the widow and Elijah I'm not sure about you, but I can tell you that there's no greater loss or tragedy in this world than losing someone you love. And I'm sure that many of you in a room this size have had experiences and ordeals of losing someone close. But I might add, it's even more difficult when we lose one whose time should not be done. Uh, This is what is articulated uh, in... uh, In a book by Joseph Bailey, he says this, Of all deaths, that of a child is the most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jung's book, he says, It is a period placed before the end of a sentence, sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun. We expect the old to die. The separation is always difficult, but it comes uh, to us as no surprise. But when the child... The youth, life that lies ahead with its beauty and its wonder, all its potential, when it is lost, we learn that death is the cruel thief that strikes down the young and old alike. What a tragedy. The woman had experienced tragedy before. She had lost her husband. She was a widow. But this is all that she had left. And to think that she would have lost her son. What a tragedy to go from joy to trial, to go from laughter to sorrow. What an incredible thought. And if we miss that, we miss out on the miracle that takes place. Because it's not just the raising of a life, but it is taking that with a hopelessness that has taken place in the loss of her son to the hope that she has in verse 24 is an amazing miracle in and of itself. So we have this dead person, this one that is gone. Studies tell us that the greatest stress that can take place in one's life is the loss of someone close. What a tragedy, a dead son. Commentaries believe that based on the information that we are given, we can't be assured of this But it speaks about the mother holding the son. It speaks about Elijah carrying the son. I can't fathom that uh, Elijah, maybe he was a strong man, that he was uh, carrying an 18-year-old kid up the stairs. I asked Amanda, I said, Amanda, can you show me how you would hold Noah? And uh, we had a little uh, exhibit going on in our, in our uh, kitchen. And I said, okay, Noah, now act like you're dead. And it was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen in my life. And she almost dropped him and almost killed him by dropping him. But she was able to hold him. So we figured that this kid probably was anywhere from, you know, probably 8 to 12 years of age. Probably not much older than that. Um, based on what we know and, and what, we're, what we're given in the text. What an incredible thought. The loss of a little boy, of a young boy. What must have taken place in the heart and mind of the widow? Notice the next thing we see. The trial doesn't just involve someone who dies, but involves a distraught parent. Uh, that's wrong, so we'll go ahead and move that. distraught parent. And, uh, and we see the woman freak out notice right away the child is dead and she looks to Elijah and she says what do you have against me man of God did you come to remind me of my sin and kill me the widow man she loses it and I totally can expect that the woman has just lost her son now the writer doesn't tell us all that entails that but let me tell you something 20 years ago, my parents lost their oldest boy. And I remember I I had gone to school. It had happened on a a Sunday night. We didn't learn until Monday uh, around 7.30. I had already made my way to school. My parents had sent me to school thinking my brother was just somewhere at a friend's house and in a heap of trouble, Um, and so they sent me to school. And I remember one of the first thoughts I had coming back home was hearing the weeping and I might even add, it wasn't even weeping, it was wailing by my mom. She was laid out. She hadn't moved since the policemen had gotten there. And she was pleading with the policemen to leave because they had brought bad news. Get out of here. What you? you made a mistake. And the guttural, I mean, it was, so, it was so yucky. I can't even think of a word to think of a mother's pain. She was undone. And if we don't recognize the pain and the sorrow of this woman, then we lose the story. We miss the emotion behind it. I saw my mom become completely undone as an individual. She went off on everybody. The things that she said to the policemen, she wanted them out of there. These poor men had just come and done their duty, hating the job that they had that day, to say a 16-year-old boy was dead. And my mom says, I hate you. Get out of here. I don't want nothing to do with you. Why have you come? Screaming. This is what the woman does. Totally understandable. Totally understandable in great amounts of pain that she would be distraught. A distraught parent. And notice what she does. Things that are so true for us as human beings in our trial, she looks for someone to blame. And how convenient is it that there's Elijah, this man that has helped provide, this man who came and their life depended on it. Remember, it says that, that uh, in the opening verses at his time at Zarephath, it says that he sees the woman, the, woman, the widow. She's gathering sticks, and he asks her the question, can you uh, give me some water and can you give me some food? And he make, she makes the response that I'm gathering sticks so we can eat our last meal and die. She recognizes that her end was near, and it was Elijah who had kept her alive. It was Elijah and his God that had taken care of the issue that had befallen them. And now a greater issue comes, and she turns on the prophet. How true is that of us in our times? I can assure you that the greatest time of struggle that my family has ever had Was the time that was right after my brother's death. We blamed one another. We struggled with one another. I I remember thinking, "Man, we're never going to get over this. We're we're always arguing." And it was always, "How can you be happy when we've just buried our family member? How can you move on with life?" And the grieving process is an ugly thing. And there was blame, and there were things that were said. It was because we were a distraught people, and this woman was a distraught widow. And so she blames, first of all, Elijah. What have you done? This wasn't a problem before you came, you must be the issue. Why did you come? Why are you the grim reaper who comes and takes life? This is my only son. This is all I have. I wonder if she said, hey, you know, I know you provided for us, but hey, I've given you a roof over your head. I've kept you out of the uh, limelight. I haven't told anybody that you're the prophet that has held back the rain. I haven't done any of that. And this is what you do? You come and you take my son? Oh, I wonder what is read between the lines that we don't see the pain and the agony, the words that are shared. But notice she doesn't just blame Elijah. She blames herself. She blames herself and she says, it must be because of my sin. Have you come to remind me of my sin? We don't know what sin she's talking about. We don't know if it's a particular sin. We don't know if it's a whole list of sins. We just don't know. Now, was she wrong in thinking that her sin may have had an issue to it? Some of you may say rather quickly, no, or yes, she should uh, not think that way. Why would she do that? It's completely wrong. I will tell you that if you want to have a full understanding of the depth and the trials that sin can come in, you have to have a biblical understanding. And we have to understand that the Bible is clear that sin leads to death. We know it leads to uh, a spiritual death. We recognize because of sinful creatures, we have physical death. And we recognize from different passages in the Bible that certain sins can lead to death. In our study of 1 John chapter 5, we talked about the sin that leads to death. And so we need to totally understand and be totally aware that sin can lead to death. So she's asking a a right question. In fact, I would tell you in any of your trials, in any of your troubles, one of the first questions you should ask is this, have I done something that has caused this? Has my disobedience led us to this place? And if it hasn't, then be free from it. Ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything that I've done that that would have drawn this to it? Is is this an issue of pride in me? Is this an issue of sinful uh, decisions that have been made? She doesn't do that right away. She just assumes it and moves on. That's the struggle with where she's at. She's asking the right questions, but she's asking them in the wrong way. We have got a dead person in the room. We've got a distraught parent. Now, let's get to our main character, Elijah. And I'm going to tell you, and some of you may disagree, and that's okay. I think we've got a dumbfounded prophet. I think that Elijah looks, and and Elijah's a great man of faith. But i got to believe, and I keep going back to this, he's a man like us. He has the same issues and concerns and anxieties just like us. I wonder if Elijah sat there and said, my goodness, God, what have you done? what have you done? I've been witnessing to these people. I've been telling them about your goodness. I've been telling them that you are a God that provides and you're a God that loves and cares and you take care. And Lord, you brought me to this place. And my goodness, God, why didn't you just kill them in the first place? Why did you even have me come to their house? They were going to die anyway. Why did you give them this false sense of hope? I want you to know none of that is in the text. I want us to think about what this man may have been thinking. I say, "Where do you get that from anywhere? I will tell you it's found in his prayer, because the same questions that Eli- or that the woman asks, Elijah asks as well. And I'll address this in a little bit, but let me just read this so that we know. Then, in verse 20, he cried out to the Lord, "O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow?" I am staying with by causing her son to die. Elijah recognizes that he has had a time of great testing in his life. And he's saying, am I radioactive? That wherever I go, bad things happen? I mean, my goodness, I, I, I've been a part of this drought and, and famine, and I know, Lord, it was from you, but, but I was the one that declared it, and I'm the one that's going to declare its end. And now only trial and trouble has come to these people, and God, really was not worth it? And my goodness, it was just a boy. It's just a little boy. Why did you have to take him? I think Elijah's having a crisis of his faith. And I will tell you it's in those crises of faith that God does his greatest work. It is there when we are most honest, when we are most open, when we are the most transparent that God proves himself to be faithful. And so we see three people that have really, it seems no answer at this initial start. But it is here that God becomes faithful. Evidently involved in the life of the people notice what we see We see in point number two that elijah is victorious he passes with flying colors amidst this on-the-job training because of his trust in the lord Let me explain something very quickly You have a choice to make in the tragedies of your life and that choice that window Is going to be very small? Some of you have heard this before, uh, but my my father um, had gotten the message about my brother's death, and, and he tells our family this. He said, I didn't know what to do. So I knew I had to go pick up Tim at school. And so I got in the car, and he says, I was driving on Route 30 going into Hinkley, and he says, the Lord just overwhelmed me, and I pulled over, and I fought with God. I said, I gotta go get Tim. Why won't you let me drive? Just let me get my other son so I know the rest of my family is safe. And he said, it was overwhelming there in that van that God said, it is time to choose. Are you going to honor and praise me in your trial or will you curse me and turn away from me? And my father said, and he's true, I never saw it at any other point in time. My dad said, I'm going to believe that my God is faithful. But Let me tell you something. There's a decision that we make in the trials of our lives. We're either going to curse God and point our finger at him and say, Who do you think you are? Or we're going to say, God, as I said in week one, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let me tell you something. It was that moment. It was that decision in time that allowed my father just a couple hours later to go to Mercy Center Hospital and to look at my, my brother. We had to identify him. And to see my brother's uh, corpse and my father. I'm wondering, I'm, I'm a 14-year-old kid wondering what is going to happen. My dad starts singing hymns. He just starts singing in this little room. Just us, as the last time as a family we were together. And just he just starts saying, we've got to praise our God. We gotta, who else are we going to turn to? Where will we go? And he just starts praising God. Brothers and sisters, when trials come, you have a decision to make. And that decision either is my faith is going to grow or it's going to be I'm going to live this life on my own and I'm going to tell you something. Good luck. Good luck. This is what Elijah does. He trusts in the Lord. And because of that, it enables him to do some things. First of all, it enables him to be calm. Notice verse 19. He has just been accused. He's just been told, you've killed my son. Look at the words. Have you come, she says, to remind me of my sin and to kill my son. I'll tell you, I've been accused of a lot of things in this world. But I've never been accused of killing somebody. Talk about the most incredible accusation that could be given. Every part of us, my friends, I know would be, are you kidding me, woman? What are you talking about? I'm here. I've taken care of you. I've ministered to you. How dare you say that I kill your son? Isn't that what our response would be? You've got to be kidding me, lady. And you've lost it. He doesn't say anything like that. It wouldn't have helped anyway, would it have? He's calm. He doesn't say anything other than give me your son. I wonder how he said that. The text doesn't help us to understand that. But I would say that we learn from verse 19 that it was calming enough that she gave the man she had just accused of killing her son, she gives her child to him. It's got to be a, m- a marvelous thing. I don't know if tears were in his eyes. I'm not sure. But she hands her son to him. And he doesn't say anything. Let me tell you something. Sometimes in tragedies, we don't have anything to say. There's not words. There's nothing to say. When trials and tragedy comes, one of the worst things I hate is when I see a pastor on TV trying to explain a disaster that has befallen a place in this world. Well, let me tell you why that happens. We don't know. We don't understand it. And so when we sit here and try to put these great theological truths together, I, and, and I know all the theological answers. Yes, it's as a result of sin. And yes, it's as a result of us living in a fallen world. But there are times when we, and I was reading in the paper yesterday, they're saying now 2,500 Libyan people have been killed. And how they're being killed is there uh, trucks driving through the streets and just shooting automatic weapons into homes and everything. How do you explain that? Well, you could say it's a madman, but how can we live in a world like that? I don't know. I don't get it. Sometimes we just need to be quiet. Sometimes we just need to be helpful. The day that my brother died, my mom's Uncle Tom came to the house. Uncle Tom is not a spiritual man in any way. He's a good man. He's a nice man. And Uncle Tom came in, He never hugged anybody. I'm sure he didn't have a clue of what to say. And I'll never forget watching Uncle Tom. He went outside and he just started cutting tree limbs. He looked out at the trees and he said, you know, they need to be pruned. They need to be cleaned up. And Uncle Tom moved into the garage and and, uh, just started cleaning up the garage. I asked my dad, I said years later, Dad, what would you think about that? He said, that was Jesus. He says, that was Jesus. He said, he brought order in a world of disorder. Uncle Tom didn't have a word to say to us. There was nothing he could say, but he could do something. Elijah had nothing to say to this woman, but he knew if anything, let me just get this child away from me just to settle you down. Let me help you in some way. Understand this village, Bible Church, we don't have an answer for everything. And sometimes we just need to be there and let someone just hug us like they're going to kill us. And just receive that. Just take the beating that's due you and just let that person grab you and hold on to you and not let you go. And you just stand there. You don't say a thing. Sometimes it's going to mean, you know what, and I think this is why we do it. It's not like the people need it. I'll never forget having more food in the house of a caterer than when my brother died. People just start cooking. Why? Because they want to do something. And I'll tell you, that's a good thing to do. Who's going to turn away food? The Bidals will never turn away food, by the way. In fact, Amanda loves when we get sick because she gets on Feed the Flock. She loves that. But sometimes it's just a helpful hand. Elijah takes the child. We're not sure why he does it at this point, but he does. Next, we see his compassion. It allows him to be compassionate. He carries the boy upstairs, and it says that he lays him on the bed. Verse twenty, he cared, he cried out to the Lord, "O Lord, my God." Have you brought tragedy also upon this widow that I'm staying with by causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. In the Hebrew, which this is written in, by the way, this is Elijah just screaming out to God. The words that are used are of utter agony. Agony. Elijah had grown to love these people. This wasn't an ends to the means. These people weren't a, a, a step stool to his road of ministry. And what a reminder for me as as a pastor and for us as Christians that people are not an end to a me uh, a means to an end, I'm sorry, a means to an end Uh, But they are people whom we are to love and to minister to and to care for. Elijah cared for this guy. I wonder if this boy had brought great joy to Elijah. I mean, my goodness, a year in solitude and seclusion, and and now Elijah has this boy. and, And what joy boys bring to a world. I wonder if they're anything like my son, if Elijah every night, at some point in the evening, Elijah was told to get on the ground and start wrestling. That's what my boys do. Every, I come home, work 15 hours in a day, and the first thing, not, hi, Dad, how are you? Dad, it's time to wrestle. <laughs> it brings joy to your heart. He's filled with compassion. We see the agony. He lays the child out. We don't know how he does it. Some people think that he laid on top of the boy. Others believe he kneeled along the bed and stretched out his arms over the boy. We don't know. We don't know why he does it three times. There's a lot of speculation. It's a picture of the Trinity. It's a picture of this, that. that. We don't know. All we know is this guy's at the end of himself. He lays himself out, and he begins to cry out to God. He agonizes with this child and the death that has come. He asks, is it God's fault? One thing that I haven't shared yet, it doesn't really fall under this point, but that he deals with his issues with God in a private place. We need to remember that as believers, that our wrestling with God needs to take place in private, not in public. What would it have done for the woman for her to say, what have you done? You've come to this place and you've killed my son. And Elijah to say, I don't know. I don't I'm this crazy God. I don't get him. I don't understand. She would have lost it even more. And Elijah had the wherewithal to say, you know what? This isn't an issue between me and people. This is an issue between me and my God. God, help me understand this. And this, when we have tragedy, when we have trial in our life, we need to be honest with God. We need to be open with God, and we need to ask the difficult questions. David did it. Jeremiah did it. Some of the great men and women of the faith did it, and God blessed them as a result. And so we see the compassion. He stretches himself out on the child, and he begins to pray. And notice what his prayer is. Oh, Lord, my God. He's got faith. He says, let this boy's life return to him. Look at the confidence that he has. That's the final thing there. He's confident. Confident to ask God why, and confident to ask God will. Why, God, have you done that? We need to be confident to do that. And secondly, we have to ask the God will. Will you, God, do this? Will you, God, do that? He's confident. He prays. He seeks the face of God. He does it with utter passion. Every part of him wants to see this come to fruition. This is a time where Elijah prays persistently. This isn't just a quick prayer, but this is a prayer of, that, that it goes down to the very depths of a man. And notice what happens. Notice what takes place. It says, The Lord heard Elijah's cry just very quickly. The Lord heard Elijah's cry whether or not he answered the prayer. And that's important for us to know, that whether God answers the prayer or not, he hears our cries. But notice a couple things. The boy is brought back from death to life. This is an amazing thing. But we got to catch up here a little bit. Calm, compassionate. I'm sorry. We're going to put confident there, not courageous. Okay. He's courageous too, but I like confident better. Go ahead, number three there. Throw it up there. We have a testimony that's life-changing. There's a testimony that's life-changing. He brings the child down. and What's the woman going to say? Notice verse 22 through 24. The Lord hears Elijah's cry. The boy's life returns to him and lives Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. There are three things that I want you to know about this testimony that are of great importance. The joy that must have overwhelmed the woman because right away we see in this testimony that God's man is vindicated. This man that had been accused of killing her son now comes and says, no, you're not a curse, you're a blessing. He had been vindicated. Now notice, nowhere in the text does Elijah ever defend himself. Notice he doesn't come down and say, see, you stupid woman, I told you. I'm a blessing. I'm a good guy, not a bad guy. How dare you say that? He doesn't say anything like that. He simply takes in, this is his compassion, knowing she was a distraught parent, He takes this child and he hands him to to his mom. He says, here's your son. He's alive. He's vindicated. Sometimes we're going to be accused of things. People are going to accuse us of stuff. And we need to stay silent. Jesus is a reminder of that. His accusers came. He was falsely accused. And he did not say anything to revile back those who were reviling him. Number two, God's message was validated. She recognizes that... He is a man of God who speaks truth. Not some worthless deity, but the living and active God, Jehovah, Yahweh. His words are right. His words bring life. His words come as a blessing to this foreign woman so that she might have confidence in God. Elijah would once again see God come through. So it validates it for the boy. My goodness, he comes from death to life. He had to understand. Just so you know, just a very quick speculation within rabbinical writing. They believe, and, and there's nothing to say that this is true or not, but that they say that this son is Jonah, the prophet that gets put into the belly of a of a great fish. It's what they say. It's what tradition says. So the boy's life has changed. The widow's life has changed. She sees God come through again. And Elijah again sees his faith being grown because the message of God is validated. And so when God says, I want you to go face to face with Ahab, Elijah can say with confidence, okay, sounds like a plan. I can do it. Finally, God's methods are victorious here's the theme over and over again. God is victorious over all others. He is victorious over famine. He is victorious over sin. He's victorious over need. He's victorious over evil rulers. He's victorious over false religion. He's victorious even over death. My brothers and sisters, we don't serve an an impotent God, but we serve an omnipotent God who is victorious in every way. Now, I got two minutes and I need to close this thing. Some guiding principles. Very quickly, write these down. Just things to remind us of some truths. Number one, write this down in that space below. God will prepare you for the big troubles with little troubles along the way. God will prepare you for the big troubles with little troubles along the way. You wonder why you get that flat tire on the way to work. You wonder why you've got that little squabble going on in your family. You wonder why the difficulty comes and you sit there and you're all ticked off about how bad things are. Recognize that what God is doing is he's tempering you. And the tempering process allows you to take the heat. This last Christmas, my mother-in-law had a punch bowl and she wanted to put hot cider into it. And so she said, well, put some hot water in it to temper it. And I said, Scott, we've got to be hotter than that. She says, it will work. It will be fine. And as soon as we put that scalding cider into that punch bowl, you know what happened? It shattered. And you know what my mother-in-law said? I told you it happened, Tim, and you didn't listen. God bless a (laughs) mother-in-law. We have to understand that the small trials in our lives are a tempering process to get us to the big ones. They're the ones when we get the phone call and trouble like we've never seen before comes that we're ready for it. We know where to go. We know what to do. These little trials in our lives are those little fire drills so that when we smell smoke, when we see fire, we know exactly what to do in our hour of need. Number two, God is capable of the impossible. Pray and live like it. Pray and live like it. Some of us think that our God is unable to do anything. And maybe you're struggling with an impossible situation today. And remember God is capable. He is able we sing the song more than able to accomplish what concerns me today. Pray like that. Pray to that God who you know can answer prayer. Elijah had never heard of anybody being raised from the dead, but he knew nothing was impossible with his God and he prayed that way. Number three, live in such a way that shows you to be a follower of God. Short one, I'll go right to the point and it's this. Can people say when they watch you that you are a man or woman of God? Is that how they would describe you? Elijah was described that way. I want to be described that way. But do we live in such a way that allows for that statement to be made? And number four, when times are at their darkest, when times are at their darkest, remember God's promises. When times are at their darkest, remember God's promises so your walk with God will shine. Let me tell you something. You will be of such great evangelistic power and authority when you witness the goodness of God in your times of struggle. When times are at their darkest and you say, I will stand upon the rock of Jesus Christ. When you proclaim that truth, it is there that your walk with God will shine. People don't care how your walk with God is when everything's going great. They want to know what are you going to do when you're put into the vice and you're squeezed to the very end of yourself. As you close your Bibles, I want to play a video, a very simple song by the group David Crowder Band. And I want you to think about this, and it's the song is called Never Let You Go. Go ahead and play it. And, uh, and I wonder if this was the response of Elijah in his remembrance of God. And we'll just, after the video, you're dismissed. And just resonate and meditate on these words as we close out our
1: time clouds today. clouds sun And disaster comes Oh my soul Oh my soul When waters rise Hope takes flight Oh, my soul Oh, my soul Oh, my soul Ever faithful, ever true You are known You never let go You never let